0: Excited to be here with David Manica on the Career Pro Inc. podcast, and we have a group too. We have an audience here today that may be participating, so look for some interjection from folks in the room. But we're going to talk today about David. What are we talking about in terms of influencing? I mean, is how do you fine tune your influencing skills? That's our subject. But
1: yeah, how- you got to you got to reinforce with some practical examples. You want to get back to some foundational basics so you can build off your skills off those foundational basics. So that's kind of what we're going to do to help them reinforce and get some fine points on influencing and things that they might have forgotten and they
0: might want to put into practical use going forward. Well, what if I'm not in sales? I am not. I don't feel like I need to be in a persuasive. Oh, my gosh, John. Influence is
1: everywhere. You influence in your relationships, your um, partner, your spouse, your significant other. Your friends. If you have a church group, if you have a a trade association at work, influence is the very basis of how we get things done. That in negotiations. So to me, it's it it is one of the most critical skills to continue to move things forward. Especially in the fact that most of us don't have positional authority. We're not around being I am the boss. You know, it just doesn't happen so much anymore. It's about working in teams and as a part of that team, influencing outcomes uh, without being a complete jerk. And that's one of the elements of this that we have to talk about.
0: So in other words, if you're diabolical and you're going to use this for negative purposes, get off the call. Yeah, and you can,
1: I mean, some of the techniques of influence kind of tie into the manipulation and you start getting into this pathway of being a sociopath. And the real difference is, is are you doing it to execute and to get things done? And are you doing it tied to at least some level of unselfish outcomes? I mean, as long as you're articulating the fact that you're going to get some benefit from the things you do, the real difference in influence is if you're influencing just to meddle and just to cause chaos, that's when you start getting into the the realm of the sociopath or the jerk. But if you're influencing for outcomes to move forward,
0: then, you know, that's part of being a strong executor. And how many people have left organizations where influencing was not used for a great purpose, don't raise your hands because people can't hear that on a podcast, but if they see this. Oh, yeah. Most people,
1: that's part of why they leave. They don't feel like they have influence. They don't feel like they they have a say, or there's one influential person who's a complete diabolical jerk. And um, it basically chases them out of the organization. So that happens a lot. And, and that's part of the thing you got away is that, uh, and if you have, and, and some slides I show, I show this four quadrant matrix. And I think a lot of times people would love to work with the lovable fool over the highly competent jerk for everything we're talking about here. And that's part of influence. And sometimes we have to look at ourselves and see, maybe we're being the highly competent jerk. And that's why we're not getting things done at the level that we we think we can, based on their expertise and our talent, and we do have to watch for that. Especially if we have a very deep expertise and one that we're really proud of, we can start see, see. We might be able to go back and look at some of our relationships, and maybe we're being the very competent jerk, and that's why we aren't getting things done as effectively as we think we would with those type of skills.
0: Well, I know that uh, I, I'm sure my brothers and sisters would say that I. Use my influencing skills for negative qualities. <laughs> I mean, I think in our personal lives we've seen it where we were very enthusiastic and pushy about a subject and influential, and it wasn't the right decision. So I think if you check your heart a little bit, but if you're if you're interviewing and you're trying to find the right opportunity, sometimes that you can't see that while you're interviewing, but you certainly want to influence the people you're talking to to help you more to take you to the next level of the interview to land that contract if you're entrepreneurial or, or to find out more information. I see sometimes the lack of influence penetrating networking where people don't really, aren't able to get people to help them as much as they'd like to. And uh, how do we even fine tune that, David? So these- well, are- uh, Let's talk about the help side of it.
1: Yeah. So in your informational interviewing side, there's a thing called reciprocity. It's a, cognitive, it's a cognitive distortion or cognitive bias, meaning if you do something for someone, there's kind of an inside of us sense that we should do something back. So when you're, the, when you're trying to influence somebody to get some help, and I see a lot of your clients doing this, is offering, how can I help you? What can I do to help you out? And then because of that, then you'll start building the symbiotic relationship where that person will begin to help you. And it's ingrained in our DNA to do that. So that's a positive use of the, the cognitive bias of retroprosity. Now, there's also a lot of negative use of that, the whole quid pro quo thing, especially in politics. But ultimately, that is one way that you can influence. But taking a step back as we talk about the interview side, John, the, the, the biggest mistake that people happen and in influence on the interview side is the very basic first engagement as part of the interview. And that's where someone's judging you on trust and competency. It's the most horrible relationship because in that 30 minutes, you barely can tip the iceberg of really being able to connect with somebody on a personal level and develop and get up over making a mistake on trust and competency. But our first judgment is trust and competency. So as, as being influential, You've got to go in there and show a level of trust and competency that you can, that you can put that person at ease rather quickly. And, and that's the challenge is how you dress. Do you dress based on the environment? You know, what are your first few comments associated with engaging this person? And one of the things we talk, I talk about recently is watch the professional robot mode. Because we connect with people we like. And the professional robot mode in the interview process is seen as somebody who's less than competent, who's basically basically memorized the interviewing process and doesn't have enough confidence in themselves. So the more casual, the more comfortable you can be seen in your skin, that's going to show a level of competency that's going to connect. And believe me, I know this is hard because it's also one of the worst environments from an anxiety standpoint, from an uncomfortable standpoint, but that's one of the primary mistakes that's happened. And recently I can catch, um, you know, professional robot mode so quickly now. And it's it's quite a a bit of a turnoff. And even though the person's great, it's just, and you can't overcome that in that interview because they don't know you beyond the 30 minutes. So I was a a bit
0: of a soliloquy, but how do you want to dig into that? Partly, to share a story, I was—I did a little screening for one of our clients, who's Rod Brooks, who—who's uh, asked us to screen a few people for a role that he has. He's the CEO of Convergent. So if you see any jobs there, I'll—you know—beeline my clients to that. Mm-hmm. Of course, always a shout out to Rod. Uh, but one of the people that was interviewing actually started talking. I said, "Tell me a little bit about yourself," just the typical icebreaker question. Mm-hmm. He went off onto his professional background. I, I couldn't even, I couldn't slow him down. He's not a client of ours. He's not that. And it, it, he literally started going off on all his technical sales and his background in technology and about six minutes into it where I could barely get a breath in. I said, do you know the role that you're interviewing for is within the nonprofit sector, although your sales skills could be very valuable. Oh, oh uh, w- w- what's this role? It was almost like a video I did with my brother. Uh, that's probably pretty politically incorrect. Uh, uh, a few years ago, that some of some of my friends have seen. Oh, two Irishmen going at it! I can only imagine it's that. How not? It's how not to interview. In fact, I found out they played it at the Employment Security Commission for years and years. To, you know, just. It was like a training video. I got no nothing out of it. Other okay, than- so John, that example is screaming relevance. So
1: there's five elements of likability that tie back to influence. So are one is
0: talking about. Are we talking about one of your favorite subjects now? Like-
1: it's my. The, it's it's actually my most favorite subject for anybody who wants to be influential and be able to have the ability to sway decisions and be able to drive things forward. And this idea of being likable, nobody buys anything unless they like the person selling it to them. And that's an interview. You're selling yourself. So I want, I'm going to have to like you first, even before you're confident. Remember, the lovable jerk. We would rather work with the lovable jerk than the, than the competent jerk. Of course, we want the lovable, competent person. That's the best. But you know, at some point, I mean, I'm, I'm at least looking for that person I can connect with. So the first thing you, that you talk about right there, John, is relevance. That person missed the relevant button, and you were completely and utterly turned off, and there was absolutely no way he was, gonna, he was going to influence you going forward.
0: He can't, so, the only way he could have, and I don't know how he would do it, would be with a sense of humor or being real. Yeah, like admitting he made a mistake.
1: Like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, John. I just went off on a tangent that was really not very smart of me. And that's an element of likeonomics, which is called trust I mean, and being truthful. And and so you can. You can always come back, yes, using humor and and pointing out the fact that you made a pretty, you know, goofy mistake. So then the other element is timing and when to say something, when not to say something. When we get on our high horse, we have the sense that we think our thought is the most important thing on earth. And we want to spray that out to the whole world. Think Facebook. You know, think, think Twitter these days, right? Worst possible timing scenario. So this is very important because you want to say this thing to that hiring manager, but give them the time to put that into the context of how they're driving it and not just spilling it out there in a non-relevant scenario. This is especially true when you get into the work environment and you're working with a leader and you can get, you have to read people and you get a sense when your timing is off. And that, now let's talk about relationships, timing and, and, and influence relationships. Oh, my gosh. That's the biggest mistake that people make is bringing up things at the wrong time. And then it just just becomes a disaster. And I'm the king of that in my personal relationships. <laughs> oh, my God. Go ahead, John.
0: Dave, how when you're in these conversations or you're, you're coming into an interview, you've got so much you've got to get out or. You're yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> How do you channel some of the anxiety? Because I don't know if a lot of people know that. You've told me, and it's not like some big secret. No, go ahead. You have anxiety. Absolutely. About even uh, showing up here. Competence, yeah. Being competent. uh, In your conversations, but you've learned to channel a lot of that. How do we channel that if we're not someone who does podcasts? We're not Oh, you no, know.
1: it's hard. It's not easy. And I, I would say, first off is, you know, power out the positive affirmations before you get going. You know, understand that the world's not going to end if you make a mistake, you know, something else will pop up. Um, and then, you know, as you start getting the flow, it's like, it's like they say in any type of performance, athletic, artistic, um, anything. Ultimately, once you get into the flow, you start to relax and your brain stops thinking. It's all anxiety. The vast majority of anxiety is related to what you're saying to yourself. So if you're going into this saying that you're going to screw up, that you're, you're going to fail, that you're no good, that you're going to squash it, then of course that's what's going to happen. So you power that out with some positive affirmations, some deep breathing techniques, and then you go into the flow. And then soon enough, you start to process, and you allow your you know you allow your brain and your processing speed to take over from there. But that's a whole other other thing to have to tackle. But the key is to listen. Listen to what's being asked and stay relevant to what's being asked and stay simple in how you respond, because that's another element of economics, folks, is keeping things simple. We understand this world is complex and complicated. I get that. Everybody gets that, but what I want to hear is you understand the bedrock of what's going on in and, and simple terms, and, 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 and that's where the difference sometimes between a genius and someone who's smart. A genius can take the most complex thing and put it into a simple package. Intelligent people can make things, you can overcomplex a lot of different things, so force yourself to try to keep some of your thoughts simple you know, with a direct corresponding cause and effect, and I, and I think but simple also means that you understand, you know, what was the outcome? Uh, okay, the question is, you know, what did you learn from that situation? Well, I learned this and this and this, and this was the outcome of what I learned. And going forward, I'm going to apply it this way. That, that keeps it simple. And I don't want you to become a simple 10 in your response. It's just a matter of not adding overall color and detail. Then you start breaking through that, that, um, that relevance thing, too, which then you're in deep trouble.
0: How much is preparation, you know, involved? You can, I guess you could over-prepare, but I- Well, that's the
1: robot mode, John. I think people over-prepare. I think people over-prepare and then they get into robot mode and then your lyconomics goes down considerably because part of lyconomics is putting some of that ease, a smile. You can remember the interviewer doesn't want to do this. The interviewer is, oh God, this is my seventh person I'm going to interview. Oh my gosh. You know, what am I going to get out of this? You know- coming in with a smile, a laugh, some cordial conversation, you know, that that's part of it. So I, I really think that, you know, in, in, in this situation, you know, we got to be, we got to think through how do we get people comfortable? How do we put ourselves at ease and understanding that people want to work and want to connect with someone they'd like?
0: What if someone's listening or on this call and they're thinking, I'm stuck? How do I get unstuck to better Tune up my influencing, whether it's networking, interviewing, closing a deal, building a new relationship, what are a few things I could get off the call and do right away that that you just say, hey, these are fundamental. We all need to be on the fundamentals. What are fundamental
1: is practice putting people at ease. So when you and you're starting to engage someone for the first time, what do you smile? Do you look them at in the eyes? Do you do you you know do you at least um, maybe ask them a couple of questions about themselves? If you really want to put somebody at ease, three or four questions about themselves where you're really showing listening skills is really going to connect with someone. Hey, how was your day in the interview? How the interview's been going? You know, anything crazy happen? You know, I'm sure you probably heard some nutty stuff in the last few hours with the people you've interviewed. You know, stuff like that. Just to get them comfortable, that's going to relax them. So when you put some of that ease, it's it, it's going to enable them to to be influenced by you. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is you know start practicing reading people. Like if if it's poor timing, will come out in the office with somebody standing up when you're engaging them, or they might um, push away and slide that slide back a little bit. So reading certain body cues to be able to know when your timing might not just be perfect is is an element of like economics that can in an element of influencing which could be that um, could be very positive. So that's one thing you might want to look at. The other thing is working on solutions. So when you're engaging, especially in the in the interview, so you're not going to talk about, this is what I would do when I get here. This is what I would do when I get here, because then it's going to turn them off. Here's some solutions I've been thinking about related to some of the struggles I've heard you say that, that may or may not work, but there's some things I've been thinking about. You know, How does that work? And have you guys tried that before? So throwing out solutions and not freaking out when your solutions aren't taken. Because if you're a solution person, then you start becoming someone who's an executor. Then people are going to come to you for more solutions, but they'll stop coming to you the moment you get mad because your solutions aren't implemented. Because then it's like, oh God, I don't, I don't want to go to Sally or Bob because they're going to throw something out and they're going to ask me a thousand times whether they did what I asked and then they're going to shut down and never offer me something else because I didn't do what they
0: said. David, what if we're in a situation where we're, early in our career or, or we're more developed in our career and we're trying to make kind of a big shift. What are the, what's, does the thought process on likeonomics on influence matter there, or is it still kind of in our head? Hey, I don't, I'm not bringing that much to offer. I don't have that much to offer. I'm returning to workforce. Where do you stand? Oh my
1: gosh. That's actually the best opportunity. The, the likeonomics there is the, is the truthfulness that you are coming in with some less experience, but you're selling your capability to learn, to grow, to, to be someone that could be molded. You're not bringing baggage. And there's a level of economics there because, oh, I, okay, I can, I can work with this person. And they're going to connect with that. And then being honest about that. That's, again, truthful. The truth. If you go in there as less experience, you start trying to say how you have all this experience, it's going to be a complete turnoff. Look it. I've been out of the work world for 10 years. These are the things I did before that here are some of my transferable skills. But the best thing about me is that I don't come with any baggage. I'd love to hear more about what you're doing, how you're doing it. And then I'll talk to you about how I learn and then how I absorb information, how I might be able to fit into that more quickly than somebody with experience.
0: What if I said, I'm going to throw a question that might come from a, from a tough recruiter. David, you know, appreciate you talking today. You know, one of my only concerns really is that Will you be happy in this role? Is it, would you be challenged enough in this role? It seems like you've been president of a company and, and all these other things. Why would you be challenged in this role? Yeah,
1: I think that the key for that thing is to be somewhat honest. And then at the same time, you know, being passionate about why you've gotten to this level. So, you know, look, I jumped at this opportunity because I love your industry. I have I, I dug into the company. I love where the company is going, the direction that the company's going in. My hope is that to be part of this company, I could begin to bring that extra experience to the table in a thoughtful way to help train and help grow other people while I'm providing value for the organization itself. So at my point in my career, it's not so much about me and what I'm trying to do from a positional standpoint or a career growth standpoint. It's about being at the right company where I can execute my skills and help others while providing value for the company. And so I would attack it from that way. I would attack it from the fact that I'm at a certain level now. I'm not looking to you know to win the world at that company, but I do want to work at a place where I don't have to worry about Oh, is revenue going to come or are we going to lay people off so I can begin to build those relationships and start helping and supporting people grow and build their careers? So that concept is, a, is kind of like a net exporter of talent. So if, if you have a lot of experienced people here and you might go to a middle management job over an executive job, you could talk about how have you built others and they went on to do great things. And you could do that same thing for this company, even though it might be at a lower role than you have been at previous. And that net exporter of talent is becoming more and more important to companies when they start seeing the expense of losing talented people and how costly it is to replace them.
0: One, David, one of the local top and fastest growing staffing companies really in North Carolina has hired two of our clients. And I don't... I. You know, I don't like taking credit for my client's success. It's their success. I just am so excited because the president of that company has told me, you know, we purposefully don't look for people that were in the staffing business.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: bring a mentality that yeah. we yes. don't want. Yes. That's right. They did hire, and they hired, you know, someone over forty. They hired someone uh, near thirty, and they just—I was a little surprised. But one of the reasons that I introduced these two people to the company was, I said, I really would like them to get to know you just because you're in the staffing business, but even more, I think they have great character. And, and I think they're looking for the right fit in the right environment with a similar company. So I'd love them to know about you because to me, that's how you run your business. Yeah. Pretty high compliment, right? But yeah, those values then matched up. Ironically, I would like that to happen for all my clients at all the companies we introduce them to. But what are your thoughts on that scenario? I well, think-
1: first off, you like you the heck out of that owner because you've connected with that owner and you can't connect it to the point where that owner is like, oh, "Wow, John cares about me. John is thinking about me. This isn't just about John placing people because he's offering me these different type of folks." So that's the first thing. You've really like, liked that to have influence. And what the influence is, is you've allowed that organization to start thinking beyond experience, to start looking at the, the total package. And you're going to see that more and more, because what's happening now is experience, experience is becoming expendable. And I know it's horrible to say, but, but because of rapid change, and we call this the VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, because of a VUCA world, experience doesn't last as long as it used to last. So what we're looking for is transferable skills. Can you learn? Can you unlearn? Can you build trust? Can you influence? And influence is going to have all those things underneath it, your emotional intelligence. Can you deal with conflict? Can you negotiate and facilitate? Can you do a change management? Because that's, that's we didn't even get into that, but underneath, underneath influence is all these other things before you can get there. So that's what's going on. And finally, the last thing on recruitment it's a relationship business so they're going to look for people who can connect with somebody who can make someone get excited about working with that recruiter and and spending time with them and bringing their talents to that recruiter's package of capital that they could
0: offer their 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 organizations they're partnered with so that makes a lot of sense here's something i've learned by not only with my clients but also screening for our friend rod is that some of the not one of the people who we've qualified for for this role that we'll be interviewing with him asked me on the screening, is there anything that I could do that would set me apart from the competition if as we potentially go to this next phase? Not one person. Mm-hmm. Not one person. Oh, they're waiting for me if I told them there was something they could do. But not one person did that. I might have said I might say, Yeah, you know, I maybe I'd say nothing. Maybe I'd say read this. Maybe I'd give them a tip on that. But nobody did that. It's just like, well, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be a little bit of that. And I think that's I think as inter- people in the interview process, we're afraid to ask questions and 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 we shouldn't be, should we? And
1: I think it's all about relevance. So it's, it, to me, I mean, in that scenario, I would be judging the appropriateness of that question based on the person who's interviewing me. So how, how open has that person been in the questions from me? How important was my aggressive style to that person? So that's part of influence is reading people. So I'm gonna read you through the process and part of economics is also mirroring certain techniques. Again, remember I said, there's an edge of manipulation here so i'm I'm reading that interviewer. I'm looking at how aggressive or non-aggressive the culture is, and then I'm adjusting myself accordingly and and and, and so maybe you're too nervous that the interview, but once you get the job, these are critical parts of 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 influencing a negotiation. All right, How much information have I gathered beforehand? All right, how am I reading the conversation? What are the primary value points? And then how do I present that information in a way that's gonna keep things moving forward, not to turn that person off to keep the economics going? Especially when you have a finite relationship window. This is all thrown away when you have a three-year relationship with somebody. When you have a three-year relationship with someone, they already know your baggage. There's not much influencing you can do. That, that's a whole other conversation on influence. Here, we're talking about that, you know, that time window when somebody barely knows you or don't know you at all.
0: So I don't know, John, I might not ask that question, given what was said in the interview. True. That is true. And uh, I'm just saying that, that if you are confident with yourself, if you are on an interview where you think there are other people that will be interviewed, like you said, just building the relationship and rapport. This is what
1: I was saying. That I would say, look at man, from what I've heard, I would say, man, I'm done. Uh, from what I heard, I mean, I'm really excited about this job. I think I could do some great things for you folks. But ultimately, it's your decision. I understand that. Here are the top three th- reasons why I think I would be your best choice. But again, I understand you've seen a ton of other people. Because if you tell me that if, if I tell the interview, I'm the great guy, for, for gal, or person for you, it'd be a bit of a turnoff. Yeah, but you didn't see the other five people I interviewed, dude. You're you're the worst one. <laughs> Yeah, so you got to watch out for that. It's, it's weird how people's minds work and being, having, having interviewed, you know, at least two, 300 people, I can tell you that that goes into my mind a little bit, especially if that interviewer is more successful. What I want is somebody who's got confidence, but it's rational.
0: Outstanding. So with that being said, I will be, I will rationally turn to the group. If there's anyone here on the call on the podcast, essentially, if you're listening to this, that would like to unmute and ask David a question, now's the perfect time. Feel free to do it, or I'm going to come back at you with something else. This is really good stuff. Thank you, David. No problem, brother. Who's got something for me? There can be no dead air, right, Jennifer? Anyway, unmute, interrupt me here. I'm going to of keep rolling on even if there's something that someone didn't like or didn't agree with that's the other part that's the great part about
1: this type of banter is you know sharing i know i know mr casey has strongly held opinions so i'd love to hear if he felt there was something off kilter or wanted to debate a certain part of this topic
0: well i uh, no i am in uh violent agreement with everything you've said today um come
1: on that's not possible
0: Chris! however you you did uh you early in the uh in the talk you started off by um uh, and you've emphasized uh, obviously uh likability is a very very important at the top of the list uh, mm-hmm. uh trait uh and you mentioned that there were five things uh that that went into that. But then John diverted you to something else, and you never got to the five things. And I think it might be useful to uh, to go over those.
1: Let's do it, John. (laughs) Let's do it, Chris. Thank you, man. That's great, man. And we did not plant, Chris. I promise you. (laughs) So relevance, number one, relevant. Number two is timing. Number three is keeping things simple. Number four is a level of unselfishness. If you're going to have some selfish intent, articulate it. And the the fifth is trust. And trust slash transparency. So those are the five elements. And guess what? I didn't say nice. Nowhere in the economics area is nice. Nice people can be some of the most annoying people on the face of the planet. Um, now, I'm not saying not to be nice. Nice is great. But if that's the only thing and you're not relevant, you're not going to be likable. If you're not simple all the time, you're not a nice person who complains constantly, who is, is complains about things that aren't relevant and never provides a solution, is going to be extremely unlikable. So thanks, thanks, Chris,
0: for pointing that out. David, from Frank, can you highlight the top one or two things not to do as we, we talked about a few things to do? What's Okay, number
1: one, do not provide solutions, expecting that your solution is used. It's the most annoying thing on the face of the planet. We None of us know all the other complexity. And so accepting that an idea may not be utilized is really an important element of being influential. Now, if they use your idea and then you don't get credit, that, you can ultimately move on to another company because that's, a, that's an issue on their side. But present ideas constantly, a constant flow of ideas, a constant flow of thoughts and suggestions is a very powerful influencing skill. So don't expect that anything you throw out there is going to be utilized. Um, Number two is, oh God, if you butcher relevance, especially in meetings, um, if you are just always seen as the person who goes off tangent, you know, just Focus yourself on relevance when you can, because that is just so important, especially in today's complex and complicated world. Look, at, we could have a conversation go on to fifteen tangents off of what John and I have been talking about, and we kind of went off of a couple of tangents. Okay. But bringing that back into the box of why you came here is so critically important, because you came because of the title, you came because of some other issues. So I, I think you know the thing you can't do is you can't be consistently non-relevant. It's a kiss of death. And then I think the last thing that you can't do, you can no longer rely on your expertise as being the primary way that you influence. Um, you got to expect that your expertise is going to erode. And so you have to find other ways of influencing. And I tell you, the number one influencing technique, the two most important influencing techniques is execution. You're somebody who gets things done. And then number two is sharing paying it forward, sharing the knowledge and skills that you have, regardless of the impact that could have on you. Too many people hoard knowledge and information as they think it's part of their power process, and it's the worst thing to do.
0: David, why could that, that, what you just talked about, be a good trait as you interview for a job or a company? Just saying that, coming into it with maybe some expertise in other areas, but how you think and get things done. You're not coming in saying, "Hey, I'm. I don't have to be the expert on everything." Isn't that a hopeful thing for people that are shifting careers and changing? Yeah, it's like it's it's like an exciting time for anybody
1: who's pivoting off of a, off of an expertise because that's not the value point any longer. The value point is your ability to learn, your ability to unlearn, the the ability to influence, to get things done and the ability to keep the organization flowing and, sh- and sh- the sharing the things that you have. Um, I think that's the key. And it's, it's the, we sometimes call it the top of the T skill sets. But the top of the T skill sets, your professional skills, like understanding value, you know, whether you're an airline, whether you're a car mechanic, whether you're, you know, you work in retail, whether you code, if you can understand value, that's huge. That's a transferable skill. It's, it's gigantic. If you can work in a system and understand how a system operates, that's a huge transferable skill, a gigantic transferable skill that you can present. I understand system thinking. I know how systems operate. I know my part in that system itself. So we could kind of lay out four or five transferable skills that are really hard skills, but they're very esoteric and can be
0: transferred across multiple industries and markets. Well, let's, let's hear from a question or a comment from Dr. Vicky. Uh, From Sherry, uh, Beth, Vivian, what you got for me? Jennifer, unmute and ask the guru. I'm not a guru. (laughs) Yes, you don't want that moniker, do you? No, not at all. (laughs) Go ahead, unmute and ask, I'm listening. But, it's not really a question per se. This is Sherry here. Um, but I think also a part of influence, uh, don't forget, is about connecting, and that's something that is key um if it's either through a virtual setting or a face to face setting is to make sure that you are connecting on on the with the person in front of you. I think that is key. Yeah. great point. Great, great point. Sherry, who else? Ladies. This is Vicki. And I'm interested in your perspective on how you talk about your influence in one space and select details for use in a new space. So, for example, I have influence in nonprofit spaces in another city, a very small city. Mm -hmm. I'm in a bigger space now. How do I think about the characteristics of my influence in one place for use in a bigger place where I'm a much uh I would say I would be in a much more specialized place among a larger sea of people
1: here. Yeah. Well, I would tell you that, you know, you've been able to work in a smaller environment in a smaller city where there isn't as many people with you know money to invest or work with or time to work with a nonprofit. So you have a way of being able to fine-tune the value of why you should work with that nonprofit that can be transferred over to a larger market where people have more disposable income. So you'll probably get a higher conversion rate because you know, you know the hard and the ugly of getting folks who might not have the disposable income. So you can articulate the value of why you should engage that nonprofit at the board level or engage that nonprofit at a volunteer level or engage that nonprofit at a donation level. And that will add, lead to higher conversions and a marketplace with a higher per capita income and a larger universe of people to work with. That's huge. I mean, I would jump all over that. I'd be like, how the heck did you get all those people in that small city to participate? Man, bring those skills over. So um, as it relates to competition. I think that's the one that I would argue with you on. I would say, okay, well, how do you now, most likely you probably didn't have as much competition. So then you would say something like, well, again, I have to use the same passion. I understand the values. I articulated the value propositions, but I also had to show passion. So I'll be able to passionately discuss while." why my nonprofit or my organization is more important or provides more value than some other organizations. And then finally, like economics, I'd say, look, I'm highly likable. I can connect with people. Well, someone may want to work with us just because they want to work with me. And and there's three examples of where that occurred. And that's going to be big. I might be more into MS than what you're doing, but you know, I connect with you and I want to work on your board because you're fun to work with. And it's exciting. I, yeah, I'll work with Vicki
0: and her nonprofit because she's enjoyable that makes sense? Thank you. No problem. Excellent, David. As we wind down the podcast part of this, I'm going to stop the recording in just a moment. But what are, what are some pra- put-in-practice things we could, we could do rather immediately, uh, read, look at, and, and send us off with some, some ideas to, that we know we can put this into practice quickly or, or maybe make some quick shifts? Or how do we do that?
1: Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I would think always the first step would be you might, might be interested to have some, you know, honest 360 evaluations around those five elements. So maybe go to a good friend, go to your partner, spouse, you know, significant other, maybe go to some um, other mentors and say, here's five things. Trust, you know, unselfishness, simple timing, relevant. How do I write on those? And where is my weakest area? And why am I weak in that? Because getting that assessment will help you. Because some, you know, a lot of times we, you know, we end up eating our own dog food. For me, I thought my experience and training was so critical. And just recently I've learned I've been a blowhard in some respects. I've got to unlearn half the things that I know in order to provide more relevance. It's been crazy. And I wish I had learned that earlier so I would have shut up. So I think that that's that's the one, getting some type of assessment you know, that 360 assessment can be so valuable. So that's number one. I think number two is, is just practicing connecting. You know, Sherry, you said this so well, connecting with people and trying to put somebody at ease. So today I'm going to put as many people at ease as possible. I'm going to smile at someone. I'm going to ask somebody a couple questions about themselves before I get to anything associated with me. I'm going to send three texts out to friends and ask them how they're doing and if they have any challenges. Just to get that practice of... Being able to connect with someone put somebody at ease i think is hugely valuable in today's environment so that's that's a, another practice area to get into and then the third area for these folks especially if folks who are looking for a job pick three of your best experiences and then try to break them down into their simplest context what did you do what did you learn what was the outcome and if you can practice that that's again it's it's again you don't want to be a simple tin you just want to take something complex and put it into its most simple elements. So you can take those those three cool things you did. Okay, what did I do? What did I learn? And then what was the outcome? And be able to pitch that out. So when you explain it, you say, "Okay, this is what I did. This is what I learned, and this was the outcome of that." Someone like, "Wow, you really get that." That's my that's my thoughts, John.
0: Well, our client, our friend David Manica, I really appreciate you being here today uh, with Softed and with us and and how many people you've helped in this group individually and through your training. Really (laughs) appreciate that. We'll continue the conversation, but for now, we'll say goodbye. Bye. Thanks, John.